Welcome to the Style Free Podcast, where a father and son detail and digress on a wide variety of topics within music, art, family, and culture. Your hosts are Professor Stephen J. Tyson Sr. and Jr., also known as Dad and Papa. In today's episode, we interview Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist, educator, and director of the Hayden Planetarium. We discuss Neil's life growing up in the Bronx, his early explorations into music and art, as well as his perspectives on spirituality, religion, and family. Welcome back to another episode of the Style Free Podcast for our season finale of season two. It's great to be back with you, Dad. It's always good to be with you, Papo. So our guest today is Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's a absolute honor to have you on the show, Neil, not just because of the things that you do and the ways in which you communicate science to the public, but also due to our connection as family. Uh, We mentioned in a previous episode very briefly how you've connected with me and dad as far as the love and appreciation we have for Bruce Lee. And after that episode aired, we had some conversations around what are the other ways in which we've connected as a family, you know, as a unit between father, son, and uncle, or, you know, brother, brother, and nephew, all of these ways in which our trio has existed and evolved over time. And I've been really curious about things that may have informed you whenever it comes to your appreciation and your love for the sciences and how that could blend with some other areas, whether it's science or the arts or sports or music, all of these different things seem to also inform the way in which you communicate about science. And so I know I have a ton of questions for you, some that I've probably asked you before, especially when I was little, and some that I don't think I've ever asked you before, but I've always been curious about. And so I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And with that, I'll let your big bro roll into the first question. So starting out, I remember that you always had a sense of inquisitiveness. Uh, You were always trying to figure things out. When did you understand that your method of inquiry was related to the idea of science itself? Uh, So by age nine, a first visit to the Hayden Planetarium, mom and dad took the three of us, you, me, and our sister, Lynn, to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, to which was attached the Hayden Planetarium. And we all scattered into parts of the museum. And that wasn't the only museum we visited on the weekends. Uh, It included the art museum, the aquarium, all manner of cultural institutions that are scattered throughout New York City and are scattered around many large cities, not only in the United States, but of course, the world. So I happen to be particularly touched by our time in the Hayden Planetarium itself when the lights dimmed and the stars came out. I I remembered looking up. I said, what is that? I I didn't recognize anything. (laughs) Yeah. Growing up in the Bronx, how many stars do we have access to? Like half a dozen, you know, 10 at most. So I I thought it was a hoax, but a very nice hoax, a very pleasing hoax, looking up at the night sky that they imagined was there. (laughs) And so uh, by the time I was 11, I realized this sky is real. It's a real universe. It's immense. We're still figuring it out. And that was when I realized what I wanted to be when I grew up. And Mm. if you were an adult who asked that annoying question that adults always ask kids, what is that? What is that question, Papa? What do you want to be when you grow up? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) When I was 11, I had an answer and it was an astrophysicist. And it 
typically didn't get much of a rejoinder because if you say, oh, I want to be a, a doctor, lawyer, engineer, or, or salesperson, they say, oh, uh, Aunt Betty is a lawyer or Uncle Joe is a salesperson. No one we knew knew an astrophysicist. So they, it's kind of stopped the conversation immediately in that moment. But moment since crickets. that age onward, I've known. And the curiosity that we're all born with as children just stayed with me throughout my schooling and my adulthood. And I'm convinced that kids who remain curious their whole life, because there are a lot of forces operating against it, remain curious your whole life. Basically, you're a scientist. A scientist is an adult who never really grew up. That's how I think about it. So when you were this age, you mentioned saying that astrophysicist is something that you wanted to be, or not something, is what you wanted to be. How did you determine that versus astronomer or, you know, stargazer or, or something a little less immersive than astrophysics? Oh, well, no, there are levels here. So there's something called amateur astronomer, which many of my colleagues were at some time in their lives. Mm -hmm. And an amateur astronomer, unlike an amateur anything else, an amateur astronomer is actually an expert in the night sky and in backyard telescopes. And like I said, I don't know what else would have the word amateur and would qualify you as an expert. You wouldn't go to an amateur neurosurgeon right? <laughs> or an amateur <laughs> attorney, but someone wears the badge of honor as an amateur astronomer. So growing up, I was an amateur astronomer, had the backyard telescope, but we didn't have a backyard. We, we had a rooftop of our building. That was my backyard, mm -hmm. essentially. And so then you learn about the night sky and then you subscribe to magazines where you learn about discoveries related to the night sky. But uh, I knew that, uh, by the way, the modern word for astronomer is astrophysicist. So astronomer is sort of mm. a classic old term used until basically the turn of the last century. And oh, wow. until much more physics got attached to what people were doing when they were looking up at the night sky. And when all that physics started rolling in about the structure of stars and the temperature, the thermodynamics, the quantum physics, all of that, you had to know, especially the mathematics, you had to know and understand to decode the universe, mm -hmm. especially since math is the language of the universe. So I was always good at math. Typically, when someone says that, it implies that it came easy to them. Mm -hmm. But some came hard, others came easy, some came a little in between. But I wanted to talk to the universe, and I knew math was the key. So I invested whatever energy was necessary to gain that fluency. And so I ended up doing better in math than all my other subjects. But yeah, so it's, it was early. Oh, that's cool. So it was really the drive or the inspiration to connect or communicate or understand better the larger context in which you, you exist. All of the above, correct. Correct. And I don't know that I had this sort of existential sense of it at the time. You know, where am I? Where are we going? What does it all mean? I wasn't quite that deep about it. It was more, you know, how many moons are orbiting Jupiter and, you know, how far away is the nearest star and are there other quantifying planets? quantifying it than qualifying it. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So you want to sort of learn the contents of the universe before you start getting all abstract philosophical about it. But in my adult life, of course, it's all of the above. Cool. So it uh, makes me curious, Dad, you know, you being his older brother at this time, too, and knowing how invested you are in the arts, did you notice how much your younger brother was getting into the sciences or into Absolutely. math? And yeah, like, how did that impact Absolutely. you? 
Well, one of the things that I noticed, we shared a room together. And I remember he got a collection of little glow-in-the-dark stars. Oh, like the ones you stick on the <laughs> and stick on the ceiling and, <laughs> and matching the constellations. And it would be fascinating just to watch and experience that. It was like being in a sort of mini planetarium. That's cool. <laughs> and seeing <laughs> I, I also remember. You know, what if they're still stuck on that ceiling long after they're <laughs> yeah, painted over? You can see them kind of embossed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, many years from that, when they go and they trace uh, your roots uh, they'll, they'll go like the caves you know they'll they'll look and they'll <laughs> check out the ceiling and <laughs> ah here are the stars so but i also remember next to the bison being chased by cavemen this big um you know monolith you know that you it's called what's that 5700 what is that <laughs> well, the you address know, the of our, our that's post-apocalyptic Earth, <laughs> right? I mean, here. <laughs> we have to refigure out everything that was. Yeah, but I do remember also that uh, when you wanted the bedroom door to close, you took the weights that we got from fishing in Van Cortlandt Park. The dad used to take us fishing, and we had the tackle and weights, and you jerry-rigged these to the door in such a way that when the door was opened then the weights would come down and it would close right it was an auto closing mechanism because i was tired of getting up out of the bed to close the door after your ass anytime you left the room so you were like ferris bueller before ferris bueller setting up oh, yeah. the... <laughs> remember that scene where he's got the wires and the yep. connected to the dummy connected to the stereo so yeah i just thought it was i mean why not if you can Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. The little mechanical device to auto close the door. Uh, it worked, I think. Oh, it did work. One, no, something happened one time. Somebody got angry with somebody, and I forgot who, and opened the door faster than the string could hold the weight, and the whole thing busted. And I don't <laughs> uh, after that. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we won't mention our sister in this. <laughs> <laughs> our, our, our baby sister at the time. Right? Okay. But I, but I also remember when you came home from shop, you had built a, a lamp. It's in the form of Saturn. And when you press down on the, on the rings, the slab of, of wood, it would turn the light on as well as turning it off. So you remember that? So that I made that in seventh grade during wood shop. This is back when they segregated boys and girls. So the girls went in to learn how to bake home economics and the boys went into the shop. Mm -hmm. wood shop in one semester and then metal shop in another and one of the tasks was to build a lamp and they had these pre-made plans that i didn't like any of them and everyone picked a plan i said i want to build my own plan so i drew up my own engineering drawing well not engineering their their shop drawings and of a saturn ball with a ring where the ring is pivots where you can press the ring and then it turns on the lamp which is comes out of the center of the ball so for me the interesting part the hard part was to lathe a sphere okay i'm old am i 11 or no no probably 12 or 13 by then mm -hmm. and so to operate a lathe to make something other than a table leg you know lathes yeah. are used for many interesting things mostly to take a long dowel 
and put sort of uh, circular patterns in it, but I wanted to make a sphere. So that was much harder. But anyway, I, that lamp has been my desk lamp ever since, ever since. It's, it's on right. my desk today in, yeah. at the Hayden Planetarium. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. You know, it's interesting that the fact that you fashion that also speaks to a side of you that maybe some people don't know about is your appreciation for the arts. I remember you doing a drawing showing a, I think it was a cart or a lorry against a building. And it was a pen and ink drawing, I believe. Yeah, that, yeah. so that one, I, I remember that. I, so let me just make it clear. Um, whatever my drawing abilities were, it was a microcosmic fraction of your drawing abilities. <laughs> so I just want to make this very <laughs> clear. And I didn't fully grasp how it was you could just draw something that you're looking at and it looks just like what you're looking at. Because to me, that was like a lot of effort for me to, to come anywhere near that. So the, the illustration you remember, um, I drew that, I think that might've also been in seventh, possibly eighth grade, where uh, there was a perspective in it that I got wrong because there was a sloped roof and the slope of the roof was neither a horizontal or a vertical line. And so to get a sloped roof to cooperate with the vanishing point on the picture, that was a little more than I was able to handle at the time. So I just connected the line and what I thought would work. Then you step back and it's like, no, that doesn't work. But it's pen and ink, so it's too freaking late. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think what you were demonstrating was the form of isometric perspective where the parallel lines stay parallel. But you were, I think, more... Oh, that's, thank you for for <laughs> for explaining what I was doing. <laughs> I, so I now think you want to draw it again. <laughs> thanks for no, bailing I, me out on that one, Steve. Well, listen, I I think your trajectory was towards the cosmic perspective. Oh, there you go. Because <laughs> okay. the, the the vanishing point is that the true infinity, not just your horizon on Earth. Um, but what I will say is, I was a very geeky kid my whole life. On, on a level, uh, I don't talk about this much because it's like who am I going to tell it to that everything was quite literal to me I didn't have much of a sort of an imagination beyond reality mm. and if we get into sort of family memories here Steve you're two years my senior I could never understand how you could watch puppets in a <laughs> on television <laughs> okay <laughs> these imported Saturday morning puppet cartoons okay they're the, walking those are designed by jerry anderson it was supercar supercar so they're, they're marionettes and they would just sort of yes. their legs would sort of be lifted up and down and and the jaw <laughs> would open up and down and they have like sound like real people yes Wasn't the thunderbolt the thunderbolts was another one right well the thunderball was, xl5 it was thunderball no, it was Fireball XL5. Oh, Fireball XL5. Okay. <laughs> and then there was the Thunderbirds. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. And then and they were marionettes too, right? Wait, wait, wait. Yes. What's worse? Wait, Papa, what's worse is <laughs> they would go to touch the controls of the of the car or of the dashboard and it would be a real hand doing it <laughs> with extra movement of the fingers. And I said, no, I'm not embracing this at all how yeah. could you possibly be interested in this and, and you can see the strings too you, you can know. see the strings it's like, this is not even they're not even trying so so but you control the tv because you were you know you were the bigger brother and so i had to suffer through that but it, it went beyond that even shari lewis with her little lamb chop 
Yeah. Right. That's right. And it's like Charlie Horse. Yeah. Why are people watching a ventriloquist? Are they being fooled? Like, I just couldn't. <laughs> so my, my point is, uh, this is an indictment of my own imagination here. I, I could not absorb the imagination or embrace the imagination necessary to run with what it is they were presenting in these products. And I would say that continued through college till my freshman year of college. And this is where the door opened Steve, between me and everything you would continue to become. And I took a year-long survey course in art and design. Oh, and wow. it changed my life. It just changed my life. There, there was charcoal. There was uh, uh, sculpting with chicken wire. There were boxes. We had to put them together in a way that made a chair. There was a photography unit. This is back when you actually had to develop pictures. Um, <laughs> Pre-digital, that's how old we are. And it was just to hear the instructor comment on what I did. Initially, it was like, okay, I'm in the wrong class. I have to leave. Because one of them was, they, they have an easel, right? And they played some music in the art studio. And they mm -hmm. said, okay, for this unit, we want you to draw the music. It's like, what? <laughs> like, no, music is something you listen to. It's not something you draw. Okay. I'm not doing this. I, so I said, fine. So I put some lines on the page. And then he said, uh, no, this looks like it could use more energy. I said, energy is a freaking line on a page. I know energy is one half M energy e equals MC squared. That's what energy <laughs> is, dude. Okay. <laughs> Stop trying. <laughs> so I, I was this. I was. I was politely angered by what was going on for about the first month, but that would dissolve away. I don't want to call it a shell because I, I. It was never a shell that I put on. It was a shell that was always there, right? So I don't even think of it as a shell. It was just a part of me that I used to understand objective reality. And then I realized that art does not come from the world of objective reality. It comes from creativity. It comes from interpreting reality mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the objective reality may be a foundation for it but what comes out the artist's hand is a in a way a portal through the creative mind of the artists themselves and so, so i learned to appreciate that after taking that that course and i've never been the same since that I mean, is for so the better cool. and 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 okay um <laughs> You might remember, Steve, I never listened to music. I always listened to the news, okay? Uh, CBS, -na 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 -na. you know, yes. it was the morning news. I, I was just an infomaniac, I think they were called back then. And I never understood why people would listen to music multiple times in a row or play it. And then I said, there's got to be something to it because so many people listen to music. So I actually forced myself to listen to pop music initially and then some other genres of music. And it was an active effort to land where I knew so many other people were. It, it, it not only in the art of creating music, but listening to music, performing music. And I didn't want that to unfold in society without me, if not being a participant, certainly being someone who understands it or at least can follow it. So I did things when I was in college. I went to a friend who was a DJ for the campus station. And he was a DJ, you call it an announcer for the classical music section of the day. And I said, make a list, 
of the most important classical music there ever was. Just make the list, okay? Two lists, the most influential classical music and the most beautiful classical music, which are not always the same. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I had a, a list, a dual list. Then I went to a friend of mine who ran the, the jazz section of the campus station. And I said, give me a list of the most influential jazz music and the most pleasing jazz music. And I went into Hawk. I got my first credit card and I bought every one of the albums listed on this sheet of paper. Wow. And I systematically listened to them. And some were awkward. I didn't quite get it. I'll give an example. First played Kind of Blue. That was on the list. Kind of Blue, of course. Miles mm -hmm. Davis. And I said, what? What is it? What? You know, where's the where's the finger popping tune? Where's the song I can sing? You know, but <laughs> but but it was th this list was given to me by experts, so there must be something there. Okay, so again, I'm I'm trusting in the wisdom of those who know far more than I do on these topics, so that I can sort of grow into them. So here's what I did: I transferred the album to cassette tape. That's how old we are. Then I'd pop the tape in and run it in the background. Okay, mm -hmm. I could put both sides of the album on one side of the tape and I pop it in the while I was cooking, while I was cleaning, doing the laundry. And oh my gosh, there's a point where it kind of blew. By the way, this happened to me with Beethoven's late string quartets as well. It's just playing in the background. It's acoustic wallpaper initially mm -hmm. until it rises up from the din. It manifests itself in the firmament of my of my <laughs> living space mm -hmm. and i just dropped everything to hear the trumpet just melt into notes and, and by the way it wasn't just the notes it's like what's between the notes right yeah it was the first time i could appreciate the artistry of music the way i had by then appreciated the artistry uh, art Mm -hmm. Right, what an artist is attempting to accomplish by not only what they draw, but what they don't draw, what they're allowing you to bring to that canvas. It could be a sculptor. I'm just I use canvas as a placeholder. Mm -hmm. And for me, to this day, my personal definition of great art is something that allows the viewer to participate in what it is the artist has created so that I can take some partial ownership in the interpretation of what's going on. Mm. At that level, the art ascends in meaning to me. I remember I was at the, Steve, what's the art museum that's in a, in a train station in Paris? Um, uh, the Musée d'Orsay? Yeah, yeah. Um, the Musée d'Orsay, okay. In that museum, by the way, there's one of, Van Gogh's multiple Starry Night paintings, by the way, a lesser known one. It's just Starry Night on the Rhone, where there are street lamps, all right? Just right. how old are street lamps at that point? I mean, they're burning oil, all right? 1888. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. But anyhow, it's a, a beautiful painting. And then it has the Big Dipper as an authentically created constellation in the sky. Unlike his most famous Starry Night, where the, the moon and, and Venus are correct, but the stars are not. I, they don't entirely align with reality. Point is, I'm in that museum and I enter a room and forgive me, I don't remember the name of the room nor the name of the artist represented there, but there are these two huge portraits, right? Life-size portraits hanging high of some socialite, 
okay, some woman. I don't know who she is. She's probably important, right? And on one wall, she's posing like it's a model shoot, right? She's just lounging on, you know, against the chair and smiling. Mm -hmm. And then across from it, she's there looking pensive and not even at the artist. She's looking sort of askance. Mm -hmm. And I realized in that moment, I wanted to know what she's thinking. Oh my gosh. Mm. What, what, what did something happen? What, why? Whereas the other painting where she just posing, smiling, I didn't, I didn't give a rat's ass what's going on in that because (laughs) it had, it had nothing to offer me as a viewer. Mm -hmm. I do. I, I was not invited to participate in understanding what was going on uh, either in the mind of the artist or in the mind of who the artist painted. And so great art for me, is art that I can take some ownership of its meaning. And that way it will live with me, not only in the moment, but beyond. Yeah. So everything that you just stated, it really makes me think about how that also connects directly to your appreciation of the sciences and then also math, because the two genres that you sought to learn more about are every music is mathematical, but we really think of classical and jazz as some of the most mathematical music and the ways in which different jazz artists are, you know, composing their songs and, you know, Charlie Parker's mastery of the circle of fifths and things of that nature. It also makes me think about how you even described listening to Miles Davis and, you know, hearing notes and certain expressions musically, but yet also understanding the blank spaces in between and the gaps and how that, also can be symbolic of our cosmos itself where there's a lot of blank space in between and there's a lot of dark matter that we don't really know what it is but the things that we usually then pick up or point out are the flashes of lights and colors and things that kind of stand out to us so just in how you were expressing your appreciation for the genres of music that you sought out to learn more about it to me sounded very much like a parallel to also your experience and uh, appreciation for the cosmos as well. Well, so I can tell you that whatever appreciation I developed over those years, at no time was I thinking about math Mm -hmm. um, or or even the universe. Uh, So I don't want to claim this connection that many do, of course, you know, the music Mm -hmm. of the spheres and this sort of thing, that uh, that was never any kind of conscious thought that I had. I was embracing it in its own right. But I can tell you that I knew that why do universities have colleges of arts and sciences, right? Mm -hmm. Art and science are commonly referenced in the same phrase. And I I thought long and hard to try to come to understand why. And then I realized, I came to my own sense of it. Maybe there are others who thought even more deeply than I tried, but I realized a couple of important things. Both of them are intrinsically human. You know, art and science, of course, science is discovery of an objective reality of nature, but to want to learn about science, that curiosity that you began this show referencing is something deeply fundamental to what it is to be human. And and of course, so is the expression of art. But the biggest and most important difference is... If Beethoven were never born, or if Van Gogh were never born, 
no one will ever compose the Ninth Symphony or will ever paint the Starry Night. Mm -hmm. It's a unique product of the artist. Whereas even some of our most creatively discovered theories of the universe, if they were not discovered by the discoverer, someone later would have discovered it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. depending on how innovative it was maybe it's five years 10 possibly even 50 i give some of them 100 years but mm-hmm. there's nothing inherent in the person other than their ability to figure it out that renders what they figured out unique and so in in other words the scientist that nature is the ultimate judge jury and executioner of whether your idea is correct right now of course there's probably some social cultural boundaries in the art world Uh, you know if you're too far ahead of everything no one knows what you did and you just get Mm -hmm. forgotten until Mm -hmm. someone else bring maybe even brings in the same thing at the right time Mm -hmm. where people can uptake the new idea in a way that it can um, bloom so so many artists are long forgotten simply because they didn't move people so maybe that is in a way its own rule you know, you have to be able to reach people with your art. Otherwise, why do you exist? You exist for your own pleasure? Okay. Well, who's going to pay you, right? Yeah. Somebody once said uh, that nobody can stop, I'm paraphrasing, nobody can stop an idea whose time has come. Oh, I like that. I yeah, like that's that. Cool. That's cool. Yeah, so- as, as there, there's a, <laughs> I think there's a line in the movie, uh, what's it, it's, it's V, V, um, V for Vendetta. Vendetta, thank you. I was thinking V for Vengeance. Uh, Vendetta, thank you. In, in V for Vendetta, uh, there's a line uttered by, what's the dude's name? Uh, the main character. Hugo Weaving? Yeah, not well, that's the actor, yes. <laughs> uh, I think his name's just V, isn't it? Well, maybe it's just V, yeah, thank you. Okay, it's V. So uh, that movie is so much about the power of ideas. So you can kill the person who's expressing the idea but you're not going to kill the idea yeah. because the idea exists outside of any one person's provided the idea has been communicated. Mm-hmm. Um, it can take root in other people. So it's very hard to stop an idea. And especially Steve, as you said, especially an idea whose time has come. Some have also applied this to the idea of freedom. Mm. There may be many freedom fighters and you, you, can kill the individual, but you can't kill that spirit of freedom. Uh, and right. I'm wondering if this ties in also with what you like those said. Weren't those the last words of, of what's that movie, the guy from Scotland? Oh, Braveheart? Braveheart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> freedom! <laughs> As they disembowel him, yes. <laughs> it was martyrdom is what that is, yeah. You know, but to tie in with that idea that is there something that exists I won't say outside of the individual, but are there a priori concepts that come through an individual? You've sometimes said that I didn't choose the universe, the universe chose me, or I'm, I'm paraphrasing that. No, no, that's, a, that's an exact quote. Uh, it was yeah. what it felt like sitting in the planetarium dome, just to bring this back around. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't, it's as though I, it, once I was starstruck, by what I saw. Oh, by the way, that planetarium dome was the Hayden planetarium where I now serve as director. So that's, that's a little freaky. 
Um, but I felt like I, it chose me. And I say that more just poetically. Uh, I don't think there's some mind force out there that descends upon people. I think you can be ripe for uh, being influenced by one force or another. And what causes that ripeness? You know, things you did in life. We had gone to Puerto Rico. I did some traveling as a family where I could see the full night sky. I remember looking up. Yes. Um, so maybe I was already ripe for it. And I got to say at the end, oh, it, it chose me. Um, it's not like I was thinking about being an, an auto mechanic and then somehow it, I wasn't thinking about being anything, right? Right. There was not, there was nothing there. And then there was something there. And so, we also went to the opera too. No, exactly. I, I didn't flush out glasses. that full list. We went to the opera. We went to ball games. We went to the theater, not only dramatic theater, but musical theater. And that exposure, I, I would realize only later as a parent that that was just to run us tired so that when we got home, we just go <laughs> to sleep by six o'clock. <laughs> what a brilliant tactic that was. Uh, but we were exposed to all manner of things that grown-ups do as a profession beyond the traditional professions you might otherwise see portrayed on television, you know, in the sitcoms. So correct. I think our first, my first hockey game was back then as well. So I think there was quite the concerted effort to expose us to yeah. things you can do when you grow up. And it also, I think, provided us with the wherewithal to be able to engage with a variety of different cultures. There were certain values that were also instilled in terms about caring about other people. Well, that's built fortunate. into the landscape because our father was active in the civil rights movement, worked under Mayor Lindsay, running social programs to empower people in the ghetto as it was known back then. Of course, that would that would get a facelift and be called inner city, meaning exactly the same damn thing as the word ghetto meant in the 1960s. Right. So the weird thing in retrospect for me was, here are our parents who invest a lot of their emotional and intellectual energy thinking about and caring for others. And here I am, their, their son in the, in the sky, right? I mean, I'm their, I'm their son, thinking about planets, moons, and stars. So I'm not a chip off the old block. I'm very different in my ambitions, but that kept my feet anchored, as I'm sure it did for you, Steve, and, and mm -hmm. our sister. It's sort of a progressive baptism, if you will, to make sure that the arc of justice bends towards righteousness in yes. this world. Especially our first awareness was the 1960s, we were still seeing the civil rights movement unfold right on up to the assassination of uh, Martin, Martin Luther King Luther Jr. King. Yeah. So, and of course, Malcolm X in there, and it's just, we, we're witness to this and we're witness to the Vietnam War, which rapidly became unpopular. So that's my backdrop as I study the universe. So that kept me, that kept me real, I think. And were there any Black scientists at that i mean there were many you know especially folks who were helping to get us on the moon and shout out to the women of the hidden figures but when you were oh by the way the street in front of nasa headquarters is now mm -hmm. called hidden figures way that's cool <laughs> yeah that's cool uh-huh they renamed the street in washington dc yeah that's really cool mm -hmm. so did you have any direct access to folks who could also be inspiring that looked like you that were in the sciences in the 60s as well that you were aware of at all 
Okay, so I was I was a little different. Okay, uh, I recognized the shortcomings of the concept of role models. Mm. I recognized it very early because I said to myself, "Do I need another black person who grew up in the Bronx to have become an astrophysicist so that I can become an astrophysicist?" Mm -hmm. I said, "That's that's crazy." Mm -hmm. If if I needed someone who looked like me to have been there before me, especially being one with dark skin, that greatly restricted my options mm -hmm. of what mm -hmm. I could think about becoming in life. And so I said to myself, I, I need another way to handle this. And so I assembled my role models a la carte, right? So mm -hmm. many visits to the museum, the American Museum of Natural History, there were scientists there, astrophysicists, there were educators there. And I would hear them speak, hear them communicate. And I said, wow, if I'm ever a scientist, I want to know as much science as this scientist does. If I'm ever an educator, I want the ability to tell a story the way this educator does with a, with a, with a warm but compelling narrative. Um, and these are people who I, I, I mentioned them in my memoir because of that influence on me. I didn't want to be them. I just mm -hmm. wanted the piece of them that I deeply valued and respected and wanted to, to emulate. Yeah. And of course I had sports heroes too. I was in the little league. I played little league baseball, mm -hmm. batted cleanup, by the way, just want to, I don't mean to brag or anything, but <laughs> it was the Cardinals, right? You played. The no, Cardinals. no, no. Uh, close. There was the Red Sox. I played for oh, the Red Sox. That's right. Red Sox, little league Red Sox. Um, <laughs> uh, so I had, I had sports heroes as well, but I didn't want to be them. I wanted to, you mentioned Bruce Lee at the beginning. Yeah, I want to have the martial arts ability of Bruce Lee. Mm -hmm. And plus, Bruce Lee was very fast, reflexed. And mm -hmm. so, Steve, you and I would test our reflexes on each other all the time. <laughs> all, and That's Steve, true. I don't, did I tell you this, Steve? Um, I've yet to meet someone with reflexes as fast as mine. Except for you, okay. So <laughs> no, it's a burden to carry this responsibility. That's all right. I'm I'm getting older, so okay. Maybe you gotta try it again. So you know, in the street back in the day, you you would uh, slap. You know, you'd slap box right. You'd stand there yeah, yeah, and yep. slap the person's cheek. And the embarrassing part is that you'd have this big red welt on your cheek. People know you got you got beat. Um, but another one was you just hold out your hands, palms up and palms down, and you mm -hmm. slap the hand, little things like that, or you grab, grab the pebble from my hand, <laughs> you know, so these are speed tests. And uh, I don't know if it was always there, or whether Steve, you and I honed it with each other. Hmm. But like I said, I've yet to find someone with the reflexes as fast as my own, except for you. <laughs> I'm just saying, but anyway, all of this was going on. Yes. Um, and so to get into back to answer your question, Papa, um, no, I did not have a singular role model that was stapled together from a half dozen different people. And mm -hmm. one of the role models was our parents mm -hmm. who their caring and sense of duty to make a better world served as its own kind of role model for me. It's interesting you should mention that because that sense of caring and so forth, it ties in with the fact, I remember we went to the um, House of the Holy Comforter where um, Serafina Perez, uh, our great aunt who um, helped raise our, our mother, uh, we were watching the moon landing. Right? With Serafina? Yeah. 
Yeah. That's cool. Okay. I wasn't with you at that time. I was in Virginia visiting my best friend growing up. Oh, you weren't there for that. Okay. Right. But that was the time. And, and so I'm thinking about how the photographs that were taken of the earth from a distance, I think it's called Earthrise. Earthrise is, is, the, is the probably the most recognized photo of the Apollo era. Yes. And there was a person who also had this sense about humanity uh, that's reflected in uh, some comments that he made at Cornell. I'll give you the quote. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceit con than this distant <laughs> than the, image than of this our tiny world. Image of our tiny world. Okay, to that's me, not of that image. Uh, okay. okay. <laughs> no, but to me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale, pale blue, blue dot, dot the, the only, only home, home we've, we've ever, ever known. known. Yes. <laughs> that's so a quote I, from Carl Sagan. In Carl Hell Sagan. Dot. Yes. Yeah. And that's Hell somebody is his book. who, as you were in high school, you had the opportunity to, to me, what, what was that experience like for you? Well, I'd applied to Cornell for college and was accepted, but I hadn't figured out yet which of the colleges I was accepted to that I would attend. And, you know, some weeks go by and then this letter shows up in the mail. And it's from Carl Sagan. And I look and I say, is this the Carl Sagan that's been on The Tonight Show and has got these books? He hadn't done Cosmos yet, but he was still, he was already famous. I said, what? And I opened it up and it says, uh, I understand you're considering Cornell and you're interested in the universe. Well, why don't you come by and visit? I'll give you a tour of the lab to help you make a decision. It was like, what? what? <laughs> and so I showed it to mom and dad and they said, yeah, do it. So we put me on a bus to Ithaca and it was in December and indeed he met me in the front of his building at the prearranged time and took me up and I remembered this so distinctly he did a no look reach behind him on a table no look reach just reaches back and pulls out one of his books <laughs> and I thought that's badass okay <laughs> <laughs> and he signs it to me and it says to Neil, future astronomer, Carl. Mm. Of course, mm. I still have that book. Mm -hmm. And the day was running long and he had, I had to go back to the bus. So he drives me to the bus station. This is December in Ithaca, New York, and began to snow. And he writes down his phone number and says, if the snow gets heavy and the bus can't come through, call. You can spend the night with my family and leave tomorrow. That's cool. The whole time I'm thinking, I, he doesn't know me from anyone other than that I have these ambitions because my application to college was dripping with the universe because I've yeah. known for by then eight years, seven years, which is, you know, almost half of my life that I definitely half of my conscious life that I want to think about and study and commit my intellectual life and emotional life to the universe. And so he knew this and he called on me and so i remembered thinking i said if i'm ever as remotely as famous as carl sagan i will treat students the way he has treated me that's cool students with ambition trying to come i'll treat them the way he has treated me yeah and this has actually come to pass right so i'm there in my office and some students at the door and I'm on the phone and it's, I exaggerate, but not by very much. I say, Barack, I got to call you back. I got a student at the door. <laughs> <laughs> that's only a mild exaggeration of what I will do. Uh, so that's another sort of 
influence in the stapled together role model that I would follow going yes. forward. And of course, you would then later on go and do two versions of the Cosmos series, which. Oh, yeah, because he his first version was 1980. Yes. And then I would meet and befriend his widow. He died in 1996. And Andrean. Andrean, correct. And we would collaborate with, by the way, Cosmos takes a lot of creative people to put together. Just the storytelling, the set design, the, yeah. the you know, everything. It was amazing. So it's, it's, it's quite the collaboration. And, uh, but Anne is the secret sauce behind all three because she not only is scientific, she's not herself a scientist, but she's scientifically literate. But more important than that, because anybody could be scientifically literate, she actually feels the universe. Mm -hmm. I have no other way to explain it. Mm -hmm. So that we can have a, a cosmic truth that we're communicating to script. And she'll say, well, wait a minute, doesn't that impact us this way and how we feel and what our thoughts are and what our actions, what our responsibilities are to civilization? And this simple science fact blossoms into a story element that becomes unforgettable that's why if you've ever seen cosmos the series you are not thinking to yourself i'm watching a documentary at no time is that even a thought yeah, yeah. I, I don't think we have a word for what it is you know yes technically it's a documentary but you're not feeling that when you mm -hmm. view it you're well, feeling like it, it's an adventure yes yeah, very mm -hmm. much so. Of, of yeah. discovery. And thinking of the collaboration with the people who do the set designs or the green screens and the, all the technology and everything. You once said... Um, oh, wait, wait, by the way, <laughs> of the latest one, a lot of this was filmed in New Mexico. Uh, there, was, there was favorable tax benefits for doing that. And they set up this entire green screen with a park bench. The park bench is real, but everything else there is a green screen. And where are they putting me? on the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> I live a half a mile from the spot that I'm green screened into. <laughs> that is funny. But actually they might've green screened it anyway because in that particular scene, the pedestrian traffic and the car traffic was sped up relative to what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So you just see these streaks of light go by. It was a nice effect actually. Interestingly, you also said that, um, and I'm quoting you, isn't it one of the jobs of the artist to help non-artists interpret the world around us and the world within us? Oh my God, when did I say that's, that's a damn good question. <laughs> 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 the context was a little bit different. This is in your foreword to uh, mathematics and art, a cultural history. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. By I, uh, Lynn Gamwell. Lynn Gamwell. Uh, at uh, the time, she was... Uh, well, that's her second of two huge tomes. Initially, she was head of the art library at Princeton University, and then she switched jobs, but she was still at it. And wrote these two huge books. One is Art and Science and the Spiritual. Yeah, Exploring uh, the Invisible. And one was uh, Mathematics and Art. And I, I felt privileged to have been asked to write the foreword for both of those books. Yeah, so thank you for that, that quote. Yes. That, yes, that's what an artist should do. <laughs> right. And that's what exactly is happening with the in the Cosmos series and, and uh, a lot of what you've done. I would uh, also say, and this is a little less, this might be less common a thought among people. Uh, I have the original New York Times newspaper from when we landed on the moon. And the headline is, Men Walk on Moon. Okay. You know, another very big headline for the New York Times? 
Mm. Another competing big headline was Obama. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was it. <laughs> yep. Obama. Now, here's the thing. Generally, the size of a headline, this is like inside baseball here. Generally, the size of a headline is such that all of the letters in what you want to say go from one side to the other, mm -hmm. making it a banner-wide headline. So if you have a lot of words, you have to make the typeface smaller to fit them all in. Okay? So there's a trade-off between how much information you're going to communicate and how big the headline is. Mm -hmm. Obama was not enough letters to fill the headline left to right. So they had to arbitrarily choose a headline size, knowing it's not going to fill from left to right. So I measured the size of that type because I have that newspaper as well. <laughs> the biggest type the New York Times ever used was Men Walk on Moon. Wow. Mm -hmm. The Obama headline is one thirty-second of an inch smaller. <laughs> That can't be an accident, okay? Right, right. Yes. I had to. I had, I had to go and get a special ruler that had thirty seconds of an inch on it <laughs> to make that measurement, because they could have made it bigger. Like I said, yeah. they had room left and right, mm -hmm. so they yes. picked it. And I think they wanted to keep the moon bigger than Obama. This is yeah. <laughs> just saying. That's a little. No one knows that, by the way. I just this is the first time. That, no, that's yeah, that's, that, really that's cool. the first time I've heard that. And and I love the way. Well, who's going to do that, right? Who, who's 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 going to say, "Gee, I wonder if Obama is as big as the moon." You know, I, that's not a thought. That's a Neil deGrasse have. Tyson thought, right there. Thank you. <laughs> but wait, I was headed towards an answer to your question. What was the the question? I was actually using your quote where you said, "Isn't it one of well, the quote, I get it, I get it, artists it, it, to help non-artists interpret the world around us and the world within us?" Correct. Uh, so, uh, thank you for digging up that quote. Uh, I would add that and this is a thought that occurred to me when i read the new york the full new york times of the day we landed on the moon okay they had a pullout section where they solicited reflective poetic passages from the world's great writers and poets okay you no know, just name any great poet of the day they're in here and I'm reading their poetry and it sucks. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the worst. Um, we have pierced the sky and touched the thing. And it is the, and I said, I don't need you to tell me how great an event is that I already know is great. Mm -hmm. Th that is a unnecessary contribution of the artist to this world because the event does all the talking. You know what I need you for? Show me something that I forgot how to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Reveal something to me that I, over time, had taken for granted. Show me something I would have never noticed. But because you're an artist and you think about the world differently, you noticed it. Mm -hmm. But there is nothing about human beings walking on the moon a quarter million miles away, watching Earth from afar, that your poetry is going to help, okay? <laughs> That's why none of those poems survived the day. <laughs> Nobody's reciting these poems. But by the way, think about it. Give two what I think excellent examples here. Okay? We all know the, the Joyce Kilmer poem. We all know it. About a tree. All right? I, well, I will never be a poem as lovely as a tree or whatever. And why did that stick with us? Why? I think I know why. Because it's about a tree. 
we pass trees all the time and mm. you never stop and reflect on it. Mm. But Joyce Kilmer did. There's a, there's science in it. There's religion. There's, mm -hmm. there's soul, there's passion. And it's about a freaking tree. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and wait, let's keep going. One more example. You ready? I bet you there is no war in the history of the world where you know the name of the person who told people the enemy's coming. There is no, that is uh, uh, not the person you Paul, remember Paul, in a Paul war. Revere? This is my point, okay? So <laughs> Longfellow, I think it was Longfellow, writes a poem about Paul about Revere. Paul, right, that was right. And if he didn't write that poem, we wouldn't have any idea. We have no idea who this man is or why. He just rode his damn horse, okay? <laughs> but there's a poem about him. Yeah. And so we remember him. Dare I call him a hero, but it's somebody that required an artist to celebrate. And I try to do that with the sciences, but I credit art for giving me that inspiration to do so. I'll try to reveal something about the universe that's not in the textbooks, that's just yes. kind of fun and cool. And then mm -hmm. that's the thing you will remember most because it's so amazing. Yeah. So that sense of, um, I think you've alluded to this before, that sense of awe, you know, whether it's in, in encountering the universe, you know, nature, music, a great piece of music, a great work of art, there's something that touches the emotion that is perhaps to use another word, a transcendent in some way. This leads to the idea of spirituality. Could you say something about what the word spirituality means to you? Yeah, so in recent decades, the number of people who in surveys declare that they're affiliated with a religion, an organized religion has been dropping precipitously. Yeah. Uh, the last numbers I saw, it may be as low as 50% in, in the United States. It was much higher decades ago. Many people who lost their religion retained their spirituality. Mm -hmm. And each person, the word spiritual means something different almost for every person. So I think you asked the question correctly when you said, what does the word mean to me? So it's not helpful. Let's go look to the dictionary because everyone will have their own sense of it. Yeah. For me, spirituality is... It's some, it's a, it's a connectivity to nature, to the universe, maybe even to each other that might transcend typical vocabulary to convey. So it's more of a feeling than an expressible thought. And when I'm on a mountaintop after I, we don't do this anymore because it's all what's called service observing. You send in your coordinates. You send in when you want to observe and they schedule it out. And someone is at the telescope doing it for you. You don't even have to leave your desk. But in my day, we had to <laughs> <laughs> and, and ride a back of a mule up the side of the hill and on the mountain. And, and uh, we'd have to uh, live nocturnally because the, the night becomes my day yeah. and the day becomes my night. Once you do all of this and then you open the dome and you're in business for the night after the sun has set and twilight's last glimmers dissolve into the horizon. It's just me, the universe, and my detector, the telescope. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, is a spiritual moment because I'm communing with the cosmos alone. Just me and the universe, nobody else is there. And that's a very special feeling 
that I've never forgotten. Uh, the feeling has never gone away, even though it's been a long time since I've been alone with a telescope on a mountaintop. And you can throw in some gratuitous scenery. For example, some mountains are high enough so that cloud banks can roll in and you're above the cloud banks. That's so cool. you see what would be overcast for someone in the cities below. You're seeing the tops of those clouds and the mountain rises up in that. And if there's any kind of moon at all, the moonlight is shining down on the tops of the clouds. It's you, you would swear you're on Mount Olympus or, or you're wow. in some place that Renaissance artists have surely drawn. And yeah. so for me, the spirituality is a connectivity to the cosmos. It gives me a sense of belonging and participation in the great unfolding of the universe. That's really cool. And it makes me also think about, you mentioned uh, grandma and grandpa earlier. And I know that grandma is very religious and, you know, in the, in the Catholic faith, what, like what were grandma and grandpa's perspectives on religion and spirituality and how that, how did that impact you as? So let me just nip a few things in the bud there. Um, there's something called ashes and palms Catholics. I don't know if you ever heard of that. There's a subset of people who will say they're Catholic on a survey that asks their religion, and they might go to church 48 Sundays a year or mm -hmm. 20 Sundays a year, or they'll celebrate the quote high holidays. And they'll still say that they're Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, what I'd like to do is distinguish a religious person from that. Okay. Mm -hmm. That I just mm -hmm. described. Mm -hmm. A religious person who's devout, the religion becomes a fundamental part of the household because your life then tracks the, the edicts of what your religion tells you. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a religious person, not someone who ceremoniously goes to services, yeah. be they uh, Muslim or Catholic, or if, 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 if it's ceremony, but you don't actually fold it into your life. Mm -hmm. then to me, you're socially religious rather than spiritually religious. Okay. Mm -hmm. But my evidence of this is, and I can speak for myself, but I think I can also speak for brother man, that at no time was anything, did anything happen in the household that involved reference to Jesus or God? Okay. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, if you do that, you're going to hell. Or if you don't do that, Jesus is watching. If you don't, there was none of this. Yeah. And, and Steve, did you, did I get agreement with you on this? Yes, I would agree. And uh, except for, you know, Jesus and Mary. <laughs> <laughs> Deliver me. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Y'all driving grandma a, off the wall. <laughs> so, so the way I would, the way I would and, simplify and, what I just said was, however religious, our mother was or is, she's still alive at 93. We were raised in a secular household. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, God and Jesus and the tenets of the Catholic Church and the catechism were never topics of conversation at any time. Not over dinner, not when if we misbehaved, not when Steve, especially you, came home late after curfew. It wasn't <laughs> none of that. And so uh, the fact that she would go to mass regularly and light candles and, and or say prayers in church for lost ones, um, deceased ones, that's a kind of religiosity. But what it meant was, no, we didn't grow up in a Bible-toting household. 
There's a Bible somewhere. I have no idea where it is. And our parents never read it. I can tell you that. Okay. I, I will tell you, though, that in the living room, there was a, a cabinet and on it was a stand that had a Bible in it. Right. That, that was like an artifact. Right. It was a, it was a big old yeah. Bible. Yeah. And that was kind of fun to see it there. But it's not like she was checking it or reading it that, or that's well, true. Plus Catholics historically have never been encouraged to read the Bible. That's that's why there are priests. They were the mm. interlocutors and the interpreters of God's word. So most Catholics you will meet cannot recite chapter and verse the way any good red blooded Protestant can do. Uh, in fact, that's part of the whole Protestant movement to take control over your own access to God and not have these layers of people between you and your access to the almighty. So, uh, so my answer to you, Papo, is religion was not a thing in the household. Not only that, after third grade, it was like, no, none of this is making any sense at all. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. God sees me no matter what I'm doing. How, why, where is he? What uh, I, I was, and who was around before Adam and Eve? And their kids, who did they marry? You know, like, <laughs> right, right. There are yeah. questions that I, there, there are no real answers to. And I wasn't ready to make any jumps to faith any more than I was able to believe the strings on puppets on television. So <laughs> my, my literality prevented me from embracing that when I was able to sort of think independently. And I would say, Steve, beginning junior high school, maybe we started going to church less and less and less. That's true. To the point when I was in high school, I don't think we ever went to church, maybe for Christmas. That was it. Yeah. And for uh, special occasions, holidays and so forth, we would. Right, right. Well, it was no longer a regular thing. Very no early in our lives. But right. I think that the way in which uh, maybe not religion per se, but say spirituality was expressed was through good works, through actions, through charity. You know, like mom, you know, giving, donating, her being aware and, and having met people like Thomas Merton, Dorothy Day. She was not only a gerontologist, you know, that was one of the ways in which she also gave back and, and helped others and helped uplift others. But she also did it on a larger scale by being a regional director for minority health in the Department of Health and Human Services. Dad, through his works in community action, uh, making a positive difference in people's lives, creating structures of the infrastructure that would help to empower individuals. So I can, think- Can I give you a way... contrarian view of that, Steve? Okay. May I? Papo? Absolutely. You, Absolutely. Your co-host, I need double <laughs> buy-in on this. Okay. <laughs> Here's a contrarian view. The most visible exponents of the civil rights movement were preachers, okay, Martin Luther King among them. And he spoke of love and very rarely used the word use Jesus in his speeches, I think that was calculated, because he wanted to also appeal to non-Christians who were also religious. And the moment you start saying Jesus that excludes Jews, pretty much excludes Muslims as well. Whereas you just speak of God, then more than just your camp is has the capacity to embrace it. What I'm saying is, there's a whole set of other people involved in the civil rights movement, who were atheists, okay, outright atheist. The yeah. problem was atheism at the time was closely associated with communism and there was strong anti-communism sentiment in the United States at the time. So if the civil rights movement was going to be successful, they couldn't put forth their atheists who wanted 
rights for the working people as any communist does, that doesn't fly. So you put the religious people forward who are clearly not communists, but they want the same goal. And a religious person is much more palatable to the power establishment at the time. So I just want to declare that the act of doing good in the world is not the exclusive province of religion. Right. That's why I didn't use that word. And, and you didn't. That's right. And it, nor is it, and I'll tell you a fast story here. Good Christians like extolling the values of what it is to be Christian and love thy neighbor and all of this. And they want you to uniquely associate that conduct with what it is to be Christian. And one of the stories that Jesus told was about the good Samaritan. Okay. It's not just a story about the Samaritan. It needs the word good there. Because the Samaritans, as I understand it, were known for being not nice people, okay? So you can't just say Samaritan and mean good Samaritan. You actually have to say good Samaritan, okay? Jesus tells the story. There's some person who had been mugged. If you leave the city, you're, you're susceptible, the city walls. There's someone who was injured, who needed medical attention, and this Samaritan, who was good, takes him in. It's a complete stranger and nurses his wounds and, and, and feeds him and gives him bed and takes him to the hospital and does all pays for it. All of this. Mm-hmm. And you say, dang, would we do that today? Probably not. That means we wouldn't be good Christians. But then you realize, wait a minute, Jesus is telling this story. If he's mm-hmm. telling the story of something that happened, that actually happened, that Samaritan was not Christian. Because Christianity doesn't exist yet. Because right. Jesus is telling the story. Right. <laughs> okay? Yep. So here is an exemplar of what it is to be a Christian performed by someone who is not a Christian. I just want to say, doing good in the world. And by the way, if you do good in the world and you're not religious, your motives for doing it are, in a way, more pure. Because you're not doing it so that you'll be rewarded in heaven in the afterlife. You do it because that's the right thing to do. Yes. And so that's my that's my rebuttal to your comment. It's actually it's I don't see it as a rebuttal because or, or, I, or I didn't posit it, yeah, as one or the other. I was uh-huh. simply saying that rather than it being expressed in purely religious terms, the ethics was expressed through action. Yeah. Yes, a very small subset of the ethics as portrayed in the Bible, were part of our parents' um, mm-hmm. behavior. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that, well, now that also brings to mind something that you wrote um, in the Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. Oh my gosh, that's not even out yet. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah you got an early copy of it. Of course. You said science and technology have the power to guide moral and ethical decisions we make as a society, especially when one branch cross-pollinates another. And so my question is, can you also say that morality and ethics have the power to guide science and technology? Um, No, science is independent of any human construct. So uh, what the morality does is guide how you use the technology created by the science, but empowered by the science. Because the technology, someone has to fund that. And then was it a weapon or, or does it prolong your life, right? And those decisions require some kind of moral fiber among those in power, who, by the way, are 
never the scientists, to figure out what to do with the new thing that you discovered. So the morality guides how it gets invoked in society. Yes. But it doesn't influence what gets discovered. I, I agree. Right. There's a word that people think it means something different. So it's kind of falling out of favor. Um, science is amoral. Mm. Mm -hmm. Science and math, they're both amoral, which means mm -hmm. there has no, there's no reference to morality in it at all. Right. It's going to be what it is. It, it is what it is. And then you take it and you, like I said, you're going to make a weapon out of it or you're going to cure cancer with it. Right. Uh, what are you going to do? And that's where the moral dimension needs to come into play. And historically, they put sort of religious leaders in the room and philosophers, and rarely would they put scientists in the room. And I've been very disappointed in the history of civilization about this, because the scientists are invented the foundation of what's going on. They might have an opinion you might want to listen to and fold it into the rest of the discourse. But somehow people think that the scientists should not be a part of society or civilization beyond so just shaping it and enabling it. So the idea of discovering something, figuring out how nature works, uh, following the scientific method, that is something, as you say, that's amoral. Right. Yes. It, it, it's, there's no moral dimension to it at all. Mm -hmm. So individuals who just stick with the science itself and say, well, I'm going to figure out a way to make something happen. Uh, let's take Kurt Vonnegut in um, Cat's Cradle, this idea of Ice Nine, mm -hmm. right? Where you create something and the um, unintended consequences of that get out of hand or can be weaponized or used a particular way. Uh, what do you think is the role of ideas of ethics and morality in terms of creating a situation where the discoveries do not outrun the ability of the civilization to use it in a way that presumably would be beneficial to humanity as a whole. Not to get semantic on you, mm -hmm. um, but the, what you're really describing is what the engineer does with the science. The engineer builds the thing based on the scientific principles right. that were discovered. So mm -hmm. the ethical frontier is what the engineer does in their garage with what it is that the science has empowered. It's not, it's hardly ever the scientists themselves. I thought that the science discovers a certain principles. Yes. The engineer applies those yes. principles in order to create something. Correct. But they don't have anything in terms of ethics per se. No, no. So the engineer, I think, needs to have ethics. We should all have ethics, just make, let me mm -hmm. make that clear. But in what the engineer decides to create based on the principles of science available to them. Yep, you should think about that. Can I make a bomb or do I make an energy source to power a city? Um, that's a choice. Yeah. But and that Einstein choice, do? by the way, is not always the engineer. That's often governments who fund the research to make the weapon. Mm -hmm. And so both scientists and engineers have been heavily tapped by governments ever since we've had scientists and engineers we go all the way back to Leonardo, okay, who was a, a mastermind of machines and illustrated many military uh, weaponry, much military weaponry. There's some reanalysis of his notebooks that suggests that he might have gotten many of his ideas from someone else who was a military 
uh, weapons uh, expert, but there's no getting away from how compelling his illustrations are of the potency of what he's thinking up. He does all of this. Oh, and by the way, I think he was an artist too. <laughs> right. By the way, <laughs> so I, I heard, I heard that. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't know for sure, yeah. but <laughs> something on the side. Yeah. Right. So it's the engineering dimension of him. He was a scientist and an engineer. By the way, uh, Leonardo figured out why you can see the moon when they have a thin crescent moon. And sometimes you can see the rest of the outline of the moon when the mm -hmm. moon is in twilight skies. Mm -hmm. that, that was a mysterious fact that you can see the unlit side of the moon. He first figured that out. Um, that's science that he's doing, right? And there's some other interesting sciencey things that he did, but that's by day, but by night he's inventing military hardware. And so you can say, well, these are instruments of death and destruction, but if it's your country, you're saying, well, it's just to defend us. Right. right? And right. there are all kinds of ways of slicing that to justify being in the weapons lab. So that definitely makes me think about our space program and the history of our space program, for one, in how we've in the past built these rockets that took us to the moon and we were able to do all these scientific discoveries, but at the same time are also flexing our military capacity to other countries that were in competition with at the time. Uh, but it also then makes me think about our current technology that's available to us through science and engineering with the James Webb telescope. Whenever I see those images from the telescope and just even the concept of it, it creates almost like it creates more questions than answers at least for, as it for should someone like for, for, for okay should. good <laughs> because for someone like me i see these images and you know i watch you on cnn and i see all these things and you're talking about how these are images from the earliest moments in our universe and i'm like is it the power of the telescope and the the camera that it's taking the image of or is it the distance from that camera to where these galaxies are located, or I should, or should I say, were located? Because my assumption also isn't that they're not there anymore. So there's there's all this swirl around technology, but then distance and space and time that just feels very muddled and confusing when trying to dissect how this technology works and how we're able to define it as something that is so far in the past yet we're capturing it right now in the moment so i guess the, the question around it like is like is it more so the the power and the capacity of the telescope or is it the distance from the lens that causes us to capture something that's in that's so far in the past okay so if we were sitting in the same room together like across a table mm -hmm. where i can reach out and scratch your nose um i i would see you not as you are but as you once were two billionths of a second ago. Got you. So light travels one foot per nanosecond. Mm -hmm. A nanosecond is a billionth of a second. So, but two billionths of a second is very small in your lifetime. So I'm not wondering, has he changed since, mm. <laughs> since this light left his face? No, yeah, it yeah. was two billionths of a second relative to a, an 80, 90 year life. So no. But if I put you farther and farther away from me, then that time delay becomes greater and greater. Mm -hmm. On the moon, they're like a second and a half away. 
on the sun, you're eight minutes away. Mm -hmm. The nearest star, four years away. Mm -hmm. So you see the nearest star to the sun, not as it is, but as it was four years ago. Now, stars live billions of years. So four years is small compared to its life expectancy, the same way billions of a second are small compared to yours. But mm -hmm. as you start going farther and farther away, leave our galaxy, go to the next galaxy. That's 2 million light years away. Mm -hmm. Keep going. There's a galaxy a billion light years away, 3 billion, 5 billion. The more powerful your telescope is, the dimmer is the object it can detect. Mm -hmm. And the faraway objects are the dimmest objects. So the James Webb Space Telescope is not so much performing magic as it is capable of detecting very dim things whose light has been traveling for 13 billion years. Gotcha. So telescopes of any stripe are time machines into the history of the universe. Wow. And it's all because light does not travel infinitely fast. Otherwise, you see everything as it is right now takes time for light to go where it's going so then that also reconstructs my concept about time because when i'm thinking of it very earth-centric it's how fast it's spinning on its axis and how fast that's moving then around the sun and so my concept of time all the way up until these images from the james webb telescope has really been based around rotation and the locality of that rotation to our own sun but with this with these images in this telescope it makes me think is time more about distance than it is about our rotation around the sun no it just happens to be the things are far away and so you don't see them in the moment you see them as they once were imagine a galaxy 65 million light years from us mm -hmm. and you come out with a super duper powerful telescope and you can observe earth and mm -hmm. earth happenings on earth's surface let's imagine such a telescope exists mm -hmm. what would you be seeing now mm. what you'd be seeing now on that galaxy is what happened 65 million years ago on earth mm -hmm. because light from earth of 65 million years ago is only just now reaching that galaxy 65 million light years away yeah so what are they witnessing do you remember what happened 65 million years ago the asteroid that destroyed the dinosaurs Thank you. they'd bear eyewitness to the extinction of the dinosaurs wow they would see that in their present and of course it's 65 million years in our past so do you know of any efforts or is there even the capacity for an effort to create a telescope that you can launch at such a velocity and also create the capacity for it to turn around so that if it goes far enough into the universe and turned around and took a photo of us, that the photo and the image that gets relayed back to us is actually further in the past than where we are right now. It would have to beat the light beam. Gotcha. To do that. And uh, by the way, if we invent wormholes, you can beat the light beam. Mm -hmm. and show up instantly in a place much farther away than light would have taken you there. And then you get to see things uh, uh, in your own past. That that would be kind of fun. If you yeah, could that's do pretty that. cool. That's interesting. Yeah. When you talk about the, the, the speed of light, and I think the general idea is that nothing is faster than the speed of light, although we have a universe that is expanding. Is the universe expanding faster than 
the speed of light or yes yeah because the there's no law against the stretching of the space-time continuum at a rate that's faster than the speed of light the speed of light speed limit is objects moving within the space that is expanding and this is the difference between einstein's special theory of relativity and general theory of relativity so yeah the Space can stretch at whatever speed it feels like it. And will there ever be the capacity for there to be a instrument of science that can help us determine possibly what created the expansion of the universe to the rate in which we, it's we going? We have top people working on that right now. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Top. People. Ho hopefully that'll be uh, discovered in our lifetimes. Then, <laughs> You know, one area that we haven't really gotten into is the fact that uh, we kind of touched on it peripherally, but I remember when you created a dark room in our bathroom mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you were taking photographs on your trip to Everywhere. Africa, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Canberra, mm -hmm. to uh, Australia, to the Mojave Desert. I mean, everywhere, as well as the neighborhood, family events, Lynn playing the guitar, all the people that used to gather in our apartment, you have a treasure trove of incredible photographs, but not just photographs of things in general, but even portraits of people where you see the personality, they're, they're observational, they're, they're, um, they really bring out the, the soul or the, the Th Thanks for remembering that, because I, I valued my photography greatly at the time. Uh, we had a, uh, one of our bathrooms was interior to the apartment. Um, the apartment had two bathrooms. It was a master bath connected to the master bedroom. And then there was another bathroom, much smaller. And there was no window, which meant I could convert it into a dark room without any light. And I would hang a sign out front. I don't know if you remember what it said to you. It said, uh, please keep the door closed. Otherwise, the dark will leak out. And so... I would take black and white photos, develop them myself, print them with the yes. uh, special equipment. And uh, I'm now very slowly uh, digitizing the entire set of my negatives, which I kept very good care of and good records of. That's cool. So one day I'll, I'll put those back out into the, into the ether. I think that was your, one of your artistic outlets, uh, quite frankly. The other one is, is, was music too, because you played the piano. No, don't say that. I, well, I, was, <laughs> you did. I took piano <laughs> lessons. Okay, yeah. that's different. Yeah. I, I had like three years of piano lessons. So. But it's true that you loved music, and I remember that you would play a lot of the musicals. I know Grandma uh, and Grandpa had musicals too, like My Fair Lady and so forth. But in in our home, we had all kinds of music. Yeah, it I was mean, a, it was a music rich environment. We had calypso. Right. Lord Invader, uh, we had uh, Harry Belafonte, we had, I mean, Paul Robeson, we had... Um, the, the jazz uh, standards, those folks. That's yeah. right, this American Songbook uh, with Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Frank Sinatra, I mean, the list goes on. But I remember specifically that you would listen to Peter and the Wolf, for example, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or Oliver. Right. There's another one that mom remembers. I remember this only after she reminded me of it, that I was just not quite old enough to be left alone but mom had to go out briefly for like 20 minutes and so she put me on the couch 
and played the Edwin Hawken singers. The, oh, happy uh, day. Oh, happy day. <laughs> and I counted how many times they said, oh, happy day. In song. <laughs> and, and that's fascinating because people are hearing this and they're saying he was listening to gospel music. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. The, the gospel yeah. was part of Aretha Franklin sang, you know, mm -hmm. uh, has a whole gospel album. Amazing Grace. I mean, there's it's all part of the canon of music. Think about, it. I mean, what America has contributed to the world, not only our movie catalog, but also our music catalog is quite significant. Uh, yeah, but I like this story. So that Peter and the Wolf, for sure. Uh, and we would play, we would, we would play the roles <laughs> of, of some of these characters. You know, it, it was a, it was a lot of fun, and uh, and so you've always loved musicals. I mean, I think that you're 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 quite knowledgeable about uh, musicals and can. Well, I would warm up to them even more later on after I left New York for college, and then realize what it's been five months. And I haven't seen anything on Broadway because I'm like in Boston, <laughs> right? Boston, there are musicals in other cities, of course, but I don't think about it that way. It's got to be Broadway, right? So I didn't realize that we had a steady fix of Broadway in our lives. That's and true. I didn't appreciate that until, we le until I left. That's and absolutely so, true. To this day, I try to get in a musical uh, at least a few times a year. Definitely. And I remember, you remember when mom and dad used to collect the playbills? Oh, yes. And they I had I, them from because almost... of that. I collect playbills. I have playbill <laughs> binders. Um, yeah. So I still have them. I remember looking at their playbills and you see how the cars changed over the years. Yes. <laughs> they used to be big and round. Um, now, you also um, talk, we, we talked a little bit about Vincent Van Gogh. What was it about that first captured your attention? And why is that painting, The Starry Night, become so iconic uh, for you and, and so. Uh, well, clearly, I'm not it... the only one for whom that's iconic, all right? There have been movies that were influenced mm -hmm. by it. It shows up in all aspects of our society. Reference to Van Gogh, mm -hmm. the artist, but especially The Starry Night. For me, I just like it when artists are touched by science. I'm moved by that, especially mm -hmm. if they call me to offer some comments or advice. I'm there. They say, oh, I, you know, I'm thinking of this movie script and we want to add a scientific thing. I'm ringing your doorbell while you're still talking to me on the phone so that I can <laughs> assist. <laughs> you rang. You know, it's like the bat signal gets sent up to the sky. And so mm -hmm. I respond. That's why I'm in so many movies. I'm in movies that I had no business being in. I didn't realize I'm in <laughs> Batman versus Superman. Did you know this? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm in Zoolander 2. I'm in Ice Age 5. Okay. Right, Neil the Buck Weasel. <laughs> Neil the Buck Weasel, right? Um, because they said, well, in Ice Age 5, our Ice Age creatures realize that there's an asteroid coming and it could render them extinct and they want to deflect the asteroid. They have to figure out how to do it. So I'm a character in that story helping the other creatures figure out how to deflect the asteroid. And only after I played the role did I realize, yo, you all go extinct anyway at the end of the Ice Age. <laughs> None of y'all survive. The giant sloth, the the mastodon, yep. the you know saber tooth tiger, all of saber tooth tiger. <laughs> who was the comedian? What's his name uh, from Boston? Um, oh, Dennis Leary. Dennis Leary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My point is, uh, when an artist 
thinks about science, I, I'm there if they need me. Just drop a hat and I'm there. With Van Gogh, that painting, which by the way, I have dated, I dated that painting, the configuration of the crescent moon and Venus. This is at about 4.30 in the morning on June 21st, 1888 or nine, I have to check my nine. notes. Uh, nine. 89, okay. And because only then was that phase of the moon at that angle with regard to Venus, which is a gloriously painted, bright and vibrant there. So, but here's my point. I look at Starry Night and it's clearly not what he saw because mm -hmm. the, the sky never looks like that ever. Mm -hmm. But that's not what mattered. What mattered is he painted what it felt like. Yeah. And that's how I value an artist. This is an interpretation of the night sky, an interpretation of a starry night. If I wanted the starry night, I'd photograph it and put that on my wall. Mm -hmm. Okay. And as we began this podcast, I couldn't emphasize enough that for me, access to an artist's creativity, interpreting and understanding the world gives me another dimension that I can use to embrace the objective reality that surrounds us all. And I have a hypothesis and I've been checking, I've been checking. I think Starry Night is the first painting to be named or the background. Rather than the for like the image in the foreground. Correct. He could have called it Sleepy Village. He could have called it Cypress Tree. Could have called it Rolling Hills. No. He paints all of that. Then puts stars in the background and the stars are the name of the painting. Is there any other painting that has a name that's the background? And the background in this case is the universe, which is everybody's background. So did anybody name their painting after the universe before 18 freaking 89? And I'm thinking, no. Some have been named after Twilight. That's a start, okay? Uh, they might even name it maybe after the sun, gl glistening sun on the, maybe. But the stars? The stars are the wallpaper of your life. That's the background. You don't name your painting the background? No. So I think that's a first. And I've been checking, I've been looking, and I've yet to find an exception to that or, or a prior to it. You know, that's fascinating because it's, it's the rhythm that also is very moving. You know, the brush strokes. Mm. You know, that sense well, they're of alive, flow. basically. It's vibrant. Yeah, they're, they're alive. Yeah. Now, there's been some talk as to whether the Earl of Rossi, the third Earl of Rossi, William Parsons, uh, and his discovery in 1844 of the, the, his drawings of the spiral nebula. And by the way, Van Gogh was very knowledgeable. He was a very knowledgeable person. And in Saint-Rémy, he may have had access to uh, scientific literature that showed some of these uh, spiral nebula. That's something that's open to debate. I don't know how, how, what your thoughts are in terms of the swirling movements of stars there but yeah so, uh, so the, uh, the rossi has had the one of the largest telescopes of his day it was known as the rossi telescope 
And am I pronouncing that right? Do you pronounce the E or not? Rossi, R-S-S-E is his name. And mm -hmm. the, the galaxy M31, which is called the Whirlpool Nebula at the time, because we didn't know that there were galaxies other than the Milky Way. So every fuzzy thing in the night sky was just called a nebula. So this spiral nebula was called the Whirlpool Nebula, named for what it looked like. He drew that before photography had the sensitivity to capture that through the telescope. So many scientists had to be artists to capture what it was they saw without bias or drawing something that they wish were there that wasn't, such as what Percival Lowell did when he drew canals on Mars. That was very wishful thinking of his. <laughs> so here's my point. There's, what, 40 years between Lord Rossi's oh. illustration and that About painting. About 45 that years. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. seems to me longer than what would have been expected to be an influence on on an artist does an artist go back 50 years oh that's that's new let me draw that i i, I don't I, so no, the I'm, idea that it may have been in some journals scientific okay, so, journals so he would have seen it later had, not at the time you know, of course because he, he would have yes. been an infant at the time that it came out or whatever okay he, he, was, so, not, he was not born until 1859 uh all right he died at 37 or something is that correct how old was he when he took his life 36 37. He, he was born in I'm, I'm sorry he was born in 1853 Mm -hmm. Right. So he, he died shortly after uh, the Starry Night was painted, right, within a year of that. So you compare them. So my concern is you look throughout everything and you see, oh, this matches that. So maybe it was a cause and effect. I don't have a problem with the thought. But if you look at his drawings, those shapes are in a lot of different things. If you look at a sketchbook, that kind of swirly patterning there are people said maybe he has astigmatism and that's why there are these glow marks around the bright stars and the things and then but you see him drawing with pen or, or pencil in a book in daytime and he's still doing this right so i'm not convinced i'm intrigued by it but i'm not among those who say hey you're onto something i'm not i'm not one of those mm -hmm. okay so you mentioned Dennis Leary earlier, uh, and I know you have a big <laughs> reverence for comedians, you know, Mitch Hedberg and, you know, it was actually, you introduced me to Chris Rock's Bigger and Blacker, and I borrowed that DVD from you, and I don't know if I ever gave it back. No, you didn't, but I, No, on. actually, I didn't. It's, it's actually in my old DVD case here, <laughs> but, so I know, I know you've always had a reverence for stand-up comedians, uh, and I'm watching this show that just recently came out starring Steve Martin and Martin Short and Selena mm -hmm. Gomez called Omar Murders in the Building. Building. Yeah. yeah. And in season two, Steve Martin has a quote where he says, there's a thin line between civilization and chaos. And that line is electricity. And it really made me think, I was like, knowing how recently the grid went down in Texas, and then knowing that we essentially only have an East Coast, a West Coast, and a Texas grid in this country, it really made me think about the potential or, or, or what is the potential of our grid going down? And then how would that affect us as a society? But then also, how does that have greater ramifications whenever it comes to the sciences and things of that nature? Well, electricity is really only 100 years old, right? I mean, mm -hmm. given the history of civilization, the thousands of years of civilization, uh, we've only been electrified since the 1910s, really, and that's in the cities. 
and only with a lot of effort were rural areas electrified. Mm -hmm. A lot of that happened with the, the Roosevelt New Deal. And so we are now completely dependent on electricity. But yeah. that's not the only thing we're completely dependent on. We're completely dependent on a supply chain that enables our food stocks to go from farm to table. We're completely dependent, especially if you live in a city, completely dependent on it. And so there's a lot we're completely dependent on. To, to single out electricity as unique among them, uh, I don't know. But I can tell you that the, the real risk is if you have a virus that starts taking people out, this right. is what's portrayed in zombie apocalypse. Mm -hmm. The zombie apocalypse, it's got nothing to do with zombies eating your brains. It has to, yes, it does. But more importantly, it has to do with slowly people become zombified and the people who work at the power station now no longer run the power station. Right. The people who, who manufacture bullets for your gun are no longer manufacturing bullets. So you're up there shooting zombies, you're going to run out of bullets and there's not going to be any bullets. Right. The people who run the water purification system become zombified. Now you don't have fresh water. Do you realize the military studies zombie apocalypses? The thinking that no creative novelists have gone in that they've invested into their storytelling because the military wants to know what happens if the grid is taken out mm -hmm. what happens if the food doesn't get delivered what is there enough canned food to survive we're eating less canned food today than when we grew up you know the the urge to eat fresh food not under salted mm -hmm. and all of this kind of thing so uh, electricity is just one thread of many that mm -hmm. we are completely dependent on and yes um we are a hair's width away from total chaos in the streets especially in the cities yeah yeah so from your esteemed professional perspective what is the state of our electrical grid they're they're working on the new electrical grid where power can be transferred to where it's needed if it gets taken out in one place versus another they're working on this electricity moves very quickly if it's connected by a wire. So this is a, this is a, it's a challenge, but it's not an insurmountable challenge. And it's nowhere near the challenge of setting up the grid in the first place. Mm -hmm. So if you have a distributed grid, uh, plus more and more people are getting solar panels. Yep. So I don't see this as a problem of the future. I see it as a problem that used to be very serious. And Steve and I lived through oh, two yes. blackouts in the city. And there was a third one after Steve, you had left. Uh, happened in 1993 or so, but there was a 1966 blackout, 1977, I think it was, or 78. And, and the East Coast blackout in 2003. That's the one, that's the, that, oh, there was the whole East Coast? Oh my gosh, okay. Yeah. Right, so we, we've taken measures to reduce the, the, the frequency of mass blackouts such as that. And I, I have confidence that they're working on it in the right way. I'm not looking over their shoulder, but they know what it is they want to solve. And the good engineers working on it. So I trust them. Nice. Yeah. Well, Neil, we want to thank you for sharing your insights and experiences with us. And it's been fun. It's been informative. Well, I don't we often get to stitch together that many different things into one, <laughs> one narrative. Hey, welcome so. to Style Free. <laughs> style Free. That's right. right. Yeah. So we definitely appreciate that you took the time to join us on the Style Free podcast. Okay. Excellent. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank yep. you. Love you, Unc. Love you, Dad. All right. Love you both.